All right, week six, we are going to be studying the Holy Spirit. That is what you guys studied in this last week. And I uh, am excited for this one. To tell you how excited I am about all the material, I will start with a confession. I teach the same thing on Tuesdays, right, to another group of women. My teaching on Tuesday, because I was so excited about this topic, was 52 and a half minutes long. <laughs> they forgot to boo me off the stage when I hit 40 minutes. They forgot to throw things at me. So I want to let you know, it's not just that I'm excited, but I have gone back and greatly cut back a lot of the material. Um, so, you know, one of you maybe give me the high sign if, if it's getting a little too close to that time. But you probably noticed in your workbook this week that we cover a ton of ground, right? We were all over the New Testament as we tried to get kind of a survey study of what does it mean that God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. This builds on last week where we saw that God dwells in us or dwelt with us through Jesus. We looked at how Jesus was the better tabernacle. Jesus was the better high priest, and he was the better sacrificial lamb. And this week, we are going to use the words of a, a much smarter man who said, uh, J.D. Greer is his name, he said, God in us is better than God with us. Think about that. What could possibly be better than Jesus with, you know, God with skin on, walking on the road, along the road with his disciples? What could possibly be better than that? Well, God actually indwelling in us, living in us. I was thinking about what, what helps me understand this concept, that, that it is hard to believe that we're in a better position than the disciples. It is hard to believe that I'm actually having the advantage right now because the Holy Spirit is in me versus what the disciples had in, with Jesus being with them. And I thought about, as a young girl, how I thought about Christmas. I could not believe ever that, that the day after Christmas could be better than Christmas, right? Do you guys remember feeling that way? You would, Christmas was just the epitome of joy and celebration, and you just would fear the 26th. It was just so depressing. Never mind that you had new toys to play with, or maybe you had stuff to redecorate your room with, all these gifts that you had been given that you then got to enjoy. That was where I lacked faith that the day after Christmas, I still kind of think that way. But then I thought like as a young woman, a young adult, where, where can I relate with this? And I thought about how it was hard for me to understand how being a wife could ever be better than being a bride. Do you guys get this? Like what could possibly be better than the wedding day or, or the honeymoon? I didn't have the faith to believe that marriage could actually be better than the wedding. And sometimes we see that played out because we put all our energy into the actual wedding and forget that there's a whole marriage to follow up with that. But in my limited understanding as a young woman, I just thought there could be nothing better than that celebration of that wedding day. That was showing a lack of understanding and a lack of belief. Sometimes I think I'm that way with the Holy Spirit is I don't quite have the faith to believe that God in me is better than God with me. So our big idea tonight is that how God dwells with us, he is showing us through his word that we can know him. We can know him because he gives us the Holy Spirit. God in us is better than God with us. What God is teaching us through the Holy Spirit is that he wants to be close with us 
that he can be known. And we will see him continue to unpack through his word that he is going to restore what is lost in Eden. How can we know God? By means of his Holy Spirit is what we're focusing on. So here's the plan for tonight. The first part of our time together, I am going to very quickly move through three purposes of the Holy Spirit, things that you saw in your workbook this week, three purposes of the Holy Spirit. But then I'm going to spend the majority of our time on the implications of the Holy Spirit. So if if this is true, God lives in us, how then do we live? Those are some pretty uh, rich implications that I've been very excited about as God's been teaching me. And so rather than just spending the bulk of our time on maybe review of what you, you did this last week, um, we're going to land on that. So buckle up. We're going to fly through these. Um, I'm going to read some verses. Um, you don't need to turn to all of them, um, but you can just uh, maybe write them down and, and look them up later. So the purposes of the Holy Spirit, number one, what we saw in our study this last week is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us and leads us in truth. A very important scripture as we start to tie a bow on, on this study of the Holy Spirit is in John 16. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We see in another place in John chapter 14 uh, that what is said is that you know him, being God, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That sums up our, our study quite well. So what is happening here in the book of John is that Jesus is letting his followers know the game plan. Okay, He's saying, I'm going to be ascending into heaven. I'm going to be leaving you. And it is to your advantage. I mean, mind's blown. To hear that for the first time could have brought so much confusion. But he's saying, when I leave, the helper will come to you. That is what he is called by Jesus there. The spirit, who Jesus wants them to understand, the spirit is just as much God as Jesus is. He is an equal part of the Godhead, of the Trinity. What would the Spirit do? Well, taking from this scripture, what we see is that the Spirit is going to take Jesus's words, take Jesus's mission, and continue it after the ascension. He's not going to work independently, and he's not going to have his own separate message. He is just going to continue the message of Jesus. He's going to take what is Jesus's and make it known to the people. So what are some of the ways that we see that this was going to be an advantage? Well, let me just pinpoint or point out one thing that I see here that I didn't see at first glance. It says in John 16, uh, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. So one of the ways that Jesus would be better is, or that the Holy Spirit would be better is, is that he would have more of an ability to convict the world of sin. So if you think about God coming into human form, coming into flesh, Jesus was taking on some of the restraints of being in a human body. And so his ability to convict someone of sin actually would have to be someone who was in proximal location to him, someone that he was interacting with on the road. But now we have the Spirit. We have that same God who is filling all the believers and now he has this ability to bring conviction of sin all across the globe. 
It also says that he will be able to speak of righteousness. What Jesus is saying there is that just because I am now leaving, now that I am ascending, it doesn't mean that if, if you didn't believe by that day, you missed the boat. He's saying the spirit will continue my work and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You guys see that? So concerning conviction and concerning righteousness and considering judgment. The Spirit is able to do all of those works that Jesus did. We also see that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth here. The Spirit of Truth. I had you guys um, in your homework consider a time when, when was the Holy Spirit an advocate for you or a helper or a Spirit of Truth? And I hope reflecting on that showed you how much He wants to be involved in our life and wants to be speaking with us. Sometimes maybe we just understand it as the hairs on our arms stick up because something that was said just, just doesn't quite line up with God's word. And that's the spirit of truth there. Or when we see him as an advocate, when we see him as a comforter in our life, it is good for us to be acknowledging that that is the spirit. But what about in this original context where Jesus is teaching his disciples about the spirit? Why was it important that the Holy Spirit would be the spirit of truth? Something I didn't notice at first study is that this was so important because these men who were going to first receive the Spirit were going to write the New Testament. They needed the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth to them, to give them wisdom, to give them God's message to record. And that is why it was so important. They needed to be Spirit-filled. Secondly, what we see about the Spirit is that the Spirit enables us to do kingdom work. So first of all, the Spirit helps us and leads us in truth. Secondly, the Spirit enables us to do kingdom work. One of the scriptures that we looked at was in Luke 24. Listen to, listen to Jesus' words here. He's speaking to his uh, disciples again. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. There's another name that we identified for the Spirit, the promise of my Father. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then jumping over to, to Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is one of those good like Awana verses or um, VBS verses that we memorize. Obviously, I don't have it memorized, but here it is. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. So here we see that the Spirit is going to enable the disciples and then us to do the kingdom work. But this is crazy what Jesus says to his disciples he says, you should not leave the city. Don't get started on this work until you receive the promise of the Father. I don't know if I would have done a great job obeying this. Like if you think about it, if you've seen these amazing miracles of Christ, you saw his death and his resurrection, and then you're going to see his ascension, aren't you going to be geared up to go and to, to live out your purpose now? And Jesus is telling them that you have to sit tight for a little bit. Wait for the promise of the Father. Why would he tell them that? Why? If the, if the Great Commission was going to be so important, why in the world would you wait? Why wouldn't you just get started right away? 
Well, Jesus says it's because they needed to be clothed with power. As we saw in both of those verses, they needed to be clothed with power. In your homework, you saw that the original translation of that word sounded a lot like dynamite, right? That's the kind of power that we need to be considering when we read these verses. They were supposed to sit tight and wait. That made me think of of something. That made me go off on a tangent. No surprise here, but I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I really want to be a cop. Does anyone else secretly, or not so secretly, want to be a cop? Like, next career, whenever I switch careers, that's what I want to be. I have always been that way. I have always imagined myself, or, you know, if I was daydreaming as a little girl, imagine myself saving the day. You know, maybe some little girls are daydreaming about the the prince coming and, and saving them. I was always the dragon slayer in my own daydreams as a little girl. I was going to save the day. I remember sharing this with uh, the Veritas staff one day and, you know, telling them like, yeah, I, if I am in a big building or a big meeting, I regularly picture like how like I'm going to save everybody. <laughs> and I think I was expecting like affirmation or like, I don't know. But instead, one of them was like, yeah, I think you have an issue with pride. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, that's so true. <laughs> like, that is largely what's behind it. You don't have to feel bad for me. It was really true. Like, that's what's in me is that I, I do think that I can, I can save the hour. I can be, I have a bit of a messiah complex. Anyway, I love cop shows is what I'm getting at here, okay? I love cop shows. I never want to watch chick flicks. I only want to watch cop shows. Sometimes I think my husband's like, could we please watch a chick flick? And I'm like, no, Blue Bloods. I just want to watch Blue Bloods. Where am I going with this? How often do you see in a cop show that they are told, wait for your backup, right? Before they go into a, you know, a dark alley or into a house where the perp's going to be, they're told, wait for backup. But they don't always do it, do they? They get so fired up and they care so much about saving the day that they go in there and it's dangerous and they shouldn't. Wasn't well, this kind of what the disciples were being told? But not just wait for your backup, but more like wait for your superpowers. That would be a more accurate way of thinking of it. They are told him, you should not go out there and start this very important work of God until you are clothed with power, until you have the promise of the Father. So what does this mean for our life? What is the application from here? Well, we have looked several weeks now at how we are priests, right? We have seen that last week we talked about since we are the royal priesthood, one of the things that we need to be doing is every day interceding for the people in our life, regularly bringing their names before God. But there's more to our job as priests. What I see here, what is unpacked in these scriptures is that a big job for us is to witness. What we see from Acts 1-8 is that we as God's people are called to be witnesses to, to the gospel, to how good he is. Now, what's interesting is I actually didn't pick up on this my first time putting this study together. I had my dad look at the study kind of towards the end of the summer, and, and he brought up that there was no questions about witnessing. 
And I had to ask myself, well, why is that? Why did I just gaze over that? And I think that I have put that word, witnessing or evangelizing, everything in that category, and I kind of put it in the high school youth group box. Or maybe I left it in college ministry. I don't know that I've really brought it into grown-up world. I've kind of left it there where it was talked about all the time that we need to tell people about Jesus. That's not in scripture that once you're 30, you're good. We are called as people who have God living in us to be a witness to him, to speak of the gospel. So the application from this is that we need to regularly be speaking of the goodness of God. So what are some questions that we can ask ourselves? Just two quick questions to see if we're living out this role in our lives. Number one, do we have non-Christians in our weekly schedule? Have we made room for people who don't yet know Jesus? For some of us, that's easier than, than for others. Some of you, it's, it's easy. It's classmates or it's coworkers. But for some of us, it's hard. For me right now, it's hard to find that time because I work for a church and the rest of the time, I'm a stay-at-home mom. And so I am surrounded largely by believers. And so this convicted me that I regularly, I need to be intentional to have time and to make conversation with the people who do not yet know how good Jesus is. A second question that we can ask ourselves is, are we still maybe channeling our college ministry in ourselves and speaking up in a way that makes us nervous? You know that feeling you get when you're about to tell someone a little bit of the gospel? You're about to ask maybe a more forward question. You're about to tell them the truth about the gospel and you get nervous or maybe the hairs stick up on your arm like we were talking about earlier. The Holy Spirit there is telling you, I'm here to help you. I'm the spirit of truth. We need to have times in our week where we realize that we're pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, witnessing about Jesus. The second application to this point is that we should ask ourselves this question. How often do I spin my wheels in great kingdom work by ignoring the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in me? How often do I spin my wheels throughout the week because I act as if the Holy Spirit isn't even in me? I mean, I completely forget about that. I will go hours forgetting that God lives in me. It's a really big deal that God dwells inside of us, yet we can forget about it. And when I forget about it, I waste a lot of energy. I waste a lot of time because I try to act independently of that power that is in, within me. Why do we do that? I think sometimes we get confused about the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we think that like in the Trinity, you know, there's God the Father and the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, he's kind of like honorable mention maybe, right? Or he just doesn't really, he's, he's maybe a runner up in the Trinity. We don't fully understand that he is God. So if, even if we just look through this study that we've been going through, Think about the things that we've seen, the waters that were split by the power of God. That is the same power that is inside of us. The same power that shook Mount Sinai 
And that scared all of the Israelites. That's living inside of us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. Let's not ignore that. Let's not spin our wheels. Think how futile that is. Let's be aware that he lives inside of us. And let that invite us to dependence on the Spirit in the big dramatic times in life and then also in the hourly routines. Third, the Spirit builds God's church. The third purpose that we saw in our study this week of the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit builds God's church. We went to Acts 2 where we read about Pentecost. And this was a sweet some sweet scripture to read. We've, we've gotten to it at other points in our study, but we looked at it more fully this week. So I'm going to try and just sum this up really quickly. Here we see that um, the Christ has ascended into heaven and the day of Pentecost has arrived. So Pentecost was a Jewish holiday that called for all of the Jews to come to the city to celebrate. And what we see here is that all of um, Christ's followers are in one place together. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Are you guys picturing the Holy of Holies there, where that Shekinah glory of God filled that room? And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So here's a scripture where we need to pump the brakes for a second and make sure comprehension goes first. What is the scripture saying right here? So God in his creativity is going to give the spirit, going to anoint his little church with the spirit. When in that city, every tribe, how does it say it? From development from every nation under heaven is there in the city. So think about that. How many different languages then are being spoken here? Okay? The Holy Spirit comes and rests on God's people, on the disciples, and it gives them ability to speak in the languages of all of these other people that have come to Jerusalem. Why does this matter? Because the disciples could then preach the gospel to these pilgrims telling them of the mighty acts of God, telling them about how Jesus, who has just ascended, fulfills all of the Old Testament, how all of the Old Testament was a shadow to Christ. And Peter's going to go on and give this huge sermon explaining it so clearly. And now all of these pilgrims are hearing the good news about Jesus in a language that they understand. But they don't stay in Jerusalem, right? They then go home. They spread out all over. And that is how the church would start. Isn't that amazing? That is why God had his Holy Spirit anoint his people on Pentecost. Pente Pentecost coming from a word that meant harvest. Harvest. 
How often do we talk about harvest when we talk about people coming to, to Christ? This was a huge day of harvest because of God's purposes through the Holy Spirit as he showed us that the Spirit builds God's church. But hopefully you guys also got to enjoy the aha moments when you saw that this was a tongue of fire that was over those people. Maybe you went back and you thought about, oh yeah, we've seen fire before. We saw the pillar of fire in Exodus. What did that pillar mean to the Israelites? It meant to them that God was with them. They looked up, they saw this towering inferno, and they said, God is with us. Maybe the disciples also thought back to, wait, Abraham saw fire? Do you guys remember that? Abraham saw like a, a pot of fire that moved through these cut animals. Why did Abraham see that? Because God was laying out his covenant at that moment with Abraham, saying, you're going to be my people. Here's the plan. It was the start of that covenant. Maybe some of the disciples started thinking, wait, fire. Like a theophany, like this display of God's presence that often correlates with God teaching his people something new or God establishing a new covenant. That is what he does on Pentecost. This is the ratification of the new covenant. He's saying here is the better covenant, which we unpacked last week. That fire was a hint at that. This is the same Shekinah glory that we read about, read about way back in Genesis 1, where it says the spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over this small group of believers. And that Spirit was so powerful that it was going to start the church right there as the good news spread across the globe. The Spirit builds God's church. So if these purposes of the Spirit are true, and that is not an exhaustive list, that is a survey study style of, of what do we need to know about the Holy Spirit, what are the implications of the Holy Spirit then? How then do we live if the Spirit lives inside of us? Well, how I want to organize this time is that we kind of looked at two different parts in 1 Corinthians, both of which had um, what I think is a pretty familiar verse from about the Holy Spirit, two different verses that, that maybe you've heard or if nothing else you've seen on Instagram or something. So first of all, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, we are going to look at this verse that maybe you've heard where it says, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. So instead of just taking that verse and nodding like we know it, let's slow down and let's look at this context and see how much more there is for us to know. The context in 1 Corinthians 3. So the author is Paul. He is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And what he is writing to them about, which I had you guys try and figure out on your own this week, is he's writing to them because there's divisions in their church. There's disunity in the church at Corinth. Paul says to them at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's like, you're not acting like God's people. You're not acting like God is in you. You're not acting like the Holy Spirit is in you. And he goes on, he adds that. He goes, in fact, you're acting like big babies. 
what he's saying is that you guys are in these fights about who the best preacher is. They were picking sides on, on who was their guy. They were groupies for either Paul or Apollos, or I think it was Cephas. And they're getting all messed up about this. And so Paul is calling them out on that. He says, that, says to them, that's not okay. It's not okay for you to be acting like that because you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. So the first implication for us regarding the Holy Spirit is that if the Holy Spirit is in us, then we are God's house. So what I want you to do is pause there and just simplify it. What have we been talking about for weeks? God's house, the tabernacle, the temple, that was God's house because that is where he dwelt. If we're saying the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then the basic conclusion for us to make is that we are God's house. And that is what Paul says. He says, you are God's building. He's going to point out two ways that they should live if this is true. If you are God's house, then number one, what is built atop the foundation must line up with the foundation. What is the foundation of the Corinthian church? It is Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. And Paul says, whatever is built atop that foundation must line up with that. His friend Peter also wrote a similar thought. And if you've been listening to the Veritas sermons, then this will be familiar. Remember when Peter says to the church, he says, you yourselves are like living stones and you're being built up as a spiritual house. What he's saying is you are the stones that when you're put together, you form God's house. Picture a house made of stones. But each stone must line up with Christ and with the gospel. If you are going to be the place where God now dwells, then this is very important. But then Peter adds even more to that when he's speaking about our identity. And you guys know this verse. He goes on and he says, you're a holy, a royal priesthood. He says, the purpose of being a royal priesthood is that you are to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That was one of the cross-references of this week. Did you guys see that? That not only are we unpacking here that we are the tabernacle, we are the temple, but now we see, wait, we're the priests. And maybe at first we're like, oh, we already know that. That was last week. But he's telling us even more about that. Since, we're the, since we are the priests, our job is to offer sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices are we to offer God? One of my favorite verses that answers this is Psalm 51, 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We are supposed to offer sacrifices that teach the world about God's holiness and his justice. And that leads us to the second application of this, of what Paul is saying. Paul goes on to say, it does, it's not just that it needs to line up with the foundation, but it needs to be made of materials that will last. And he goes on to list off these, um, let's see, in verse 12 it says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, maybe you pause there and said, wait a minute, we've seen that how many times now? Those are the exact materials that were used to build the temple. 
and you contrast that with wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become manifest. What Paul is saying here is that the materials that are going to build up God's church must not be cheap, but rather fine. They must be lasting because they need to withstand the test of time and they need to withstand God's judgment. So what these materials are, we've talked about this before. Like with the tabernacle, the tabernacle was made of pottery barn ingredients, right? Or materials, pottery barn, not Walmart, right? The same invitation for us is here. What are our works that we are supposed to build God's house with? I think what Paul is saying here is that our works that come from the flesh will not withstand the test of time. If we are building God's kingdom with works of the flesh, they will not last. They will not make the cut. Why is that? Because we need to go back to the same truth that we saw in the tabernacle, that all of the materials, so the works that we build with, they must tell of the goodness of God. They must tell of the characters, of the characteristics of God, the gold right? Even the colors of those curtains, all of those fine materials, the stones, even the stones we saw in Eden, they told us of God's character. Our works need to do the same thing. How do we know if our works are of the flesh or of the spirit? Well, going back to something we asked ourselves last week, as we consider Jesus, is think about your, your religious works. Do the offerings, the works that you bring before God, do they come from religion and rituals or do they come from a relationship with Christ? Do they come from just going through the motions or do they come from a response to how good God is? What kind of sacrifices were the people and the priests supposed to bring before God? Their best the spotless lambs, the first fruits. Our works need to be sincere, coming from the Spirit. Otherwise, they will not stand. They will not actually build the church. What we see from 1 Corinthians 3 is that both our, our works and our fellowship must line up with the holiness the glory and the purity of God. Our works need to line up with that and our relationships, our fellowship, how we treat one another must tell a hurting world of how good and glorious and beautiful God is. That means we need to take disunity really seriously. That means that we need to identify the early, early roots, the early little fruits of disunity. When you see someone in the church foyer and you want to turn, and maybe you do turn, could that be the start of disunity that could eventually grow into something like what the Corinthian church was dealing with? Do you feel a competitive spirit towards other churches? Are you putting your pastor up against another pastor in town, someone else who's laboring for the kingdom. 
We as women need to be so sharp to see these really small starts to disunity. Maybe other women in the church that ever so subtly you think you're better than them. You think that the sacrifices you bring, that the works that you bring are far better than theirs. Or kind of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Do you see someone in the church and their mess is just too much for you? And so you distance yourself from it rather than come near like the priest that we are made to be. Let's not wait until these conflicts become these huge messes. But let's ask for wisdom from the Spirit to see them quickly and to fight against it that we can build up God's church. See, because the Spirit lives in us, guys, we have huge purpose. We are called to build God's church. And how are we called to build that? One stone at a time. So as we witness to the men and women around us by the power of the Spirit, what we will do is we will bring them to Christ. By the power of the Spirit, we will then take their feet and put it on the rock of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel. As the priest, we need to carry people before God, carry their burdens, bring their names before God, light the way to God as we've been talking about and bring sacrifices of a broken and contrite heart. And lastly, the second implication of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit living in us comes from 1 Corinthians 6. The familiar verse that, that first led me here says, um, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So if the Holy Spirit is in us, then we must be pure. If the Holy Spirit is in us, then we must be pure. So what is the context here in 1 Corinthians 6? Well, some of the things that Paul is responding to is that within the church, people were bragging about having incest. So they were telling sex stories, essentially, and bragging about it. Another issue that he is uh, referring to is that they were getting drunk at communion. So this church is, is getting kind of messed up, and Paul is addressing that. That is the context in which he starts talking about our need for purity. And so when I start talking about purity, then we start thinking, okay, this is, you know, about lust and pleasure seeking. And don't we kind of just think, oh, good, this isn't really a topic for women's ministry. This is for the men's group. I feel like that's what a lot of churches talk about. Lust, purity issues, we'll just leave that in men's ministry. In women's ministry, we'll just talk about identity. And I don't think that's true at all. See, I think lust and its many children are running rampant among women. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because we don't talk about it. Because we don't want that part of our lives to be known. And I think to get started, what we have to do is we have to redefine what lust really is, what porn is, even masturbation. We need to bring it out of the darkness and share it with one another. See, when we think about lust, it's not just a man looking at a woman's body and thinking sexual thoughts. When we think porn, it's not just like those X-rated um, sites online, right? How about the chick flicks that we watch sometimes? How about some of those sitcoms that we watch that have a sex scene every, every week? 
And how much worse is it now? Because we binge watch shows. And so now we're at risk for becoming addicted to these love scenes because they make us feel like, like we're receiving something that we would otherwise miss. See, we are not that different from men. When we see sex on TV or even just the setup for it, it does affect our hearts. We are not above that. We like to tell each other that we are, but I think sometimes it just looks a little bit different. Sometimes we get addicted to those Netflix shows because we love how that main man, that, that nice husband on that show makes us feel. And we almost get confused about what's real and what's not. We say that we don't have a problem with porn, but I think a lot of us women have a problem with soft porn. I think where it used to be the romance novels that women used to read, now I think it's Netflix. We need to talk about masturbation. It's an issue among women. It is not God's design that we would pleasure ourselves. And we think that that is such a, is such a guy's issue that any woman who would struggle with it is suffering alone and feels alone in that fight. If that is a temptation for you, you need to call it what it is. It is a chain that wants you dead, that wants to imprison you. Bring it out into the light and strive for purity and get the help of community. We need to redefine these things. Maybe we need to broaden the word too, off of lust and, and just talk about our passions. I listened to a really good interview where I heard this um, phrase used called a desire enhancing source. Maybe our way to start walking towards purity since God lives in us is that we need to identify desire-enhancing sources. Maybe it's not sexual sin, but aren't there other desires that, that we're, we think about regularly and that maybe um, turn down the heat of our love for God? Maybe a desire-enhancing source for you is Facebook or Instagram. Right? We go to this source and we see the life that we wanted. We see everyone else in the season of life that we thought we should already be in. In my season of life, lots of times it's like Instagram and Facebook is just to see everyone else's home that I wish I had and maybe I deserve I have. Or maybe it's a stay-at-home mom where if I'm just scrolling through mindlessly, I see the stay-at-home mom and I think, oh, her life is so easy. And I start coveting her life. Maybe it's that someone looks so perfectly fit and beautiful, and I don't look like that. These are de desire-enhancing sources. This source is feeding me lies that are leading me slowly away. Maybe it's Target for you. You know, you don't know how much you need till you walk through Target, right? Or Costco, even. <laughs> you guys probably aren't the Costco crowd. I said Target on Tuesday, and everyone's like, no, nah, it's Costco. <laughs> OK, that's true. But we don't know. I mean, we're totally content till we walk through the mall. And then we see all these things that tell us they're going to love us back and tell us that we'll be more lovable if we give those things. Maybe we need to consider these. But the second issue that I want to talk about when we talk about purity among women is vanity. Now, there are two camps of women here, and I have been on both sides, and so I speak as a broken mess on both sides of it. But there are two ditches with vanity. One is, is the woman who cares very much about what she looks like 
and about what the scale says and what the mirror says. But then there's another ditch too of apathy, laziness, and not caring at all. Why does this matter? Well, according to these verses, our body is a tent for the Holy Spirit. So that when we start thinking tabernacle, right? And we think, well, what did we learn about the tabernacle? Well, we learned that it was humble on the outside, but housing the glory of God on the inside. Do you believe that about yourself? That you are called to be humble on the outside, but housing the glory of God on the inside. Maybe how we treat our body should reveal a balance between understanding, number one, that my body is a tent. That means it is temporary. I will get a new body in heaven. But secondly, it's a royal tent. Remember how we learned about that? So maybe we need to think about, okay, well, which camp am I in right now? And maybe you're like me and it changes from one temptation to the other. But how I treat this body should show a balance that I understand, okay, this is just a tent. This will get me 80 years, 85 tops. But it's a royal tent. It houses the glory of God on the inside. That means that it speaks of the character of God. It speaks of his purity and his, and his power, of, of his holiness. So for those of you who maybe are on this camp of, of caring too much about what you look like or about the scale, about your clothes, a couple questions that have been helpful to me in the last couple months. When you are working out, so maybe when you are at the gym, what is it that you're actually thinking about? So exercise is good. I think we should all exercise. But we need to ask that question of where is our mind and our heart resting while we exercise? If we are thinking about a certain part of our body that is going to be changing and improving from that exercise, then we're not focusing exactly on what we're supposed to be focusing on according to 1 Corinthians 6. Maybe the gym for you is actually a, how did we say it, a desire-enhancing source. Maybe when you're at the gym or watching your YouTube workout videos or following you know, your coach on Instagram or whatever it is, maybe you need to realize that that's a desire-enhancing source, that that's just regularly feeding this passion of the flesh to be beautiful, sexy, toned. But of course, to act like you don't try that hard to get it that way, right? The goal for our bodies should be both humble and healthy, but not vain. We are made to be free in this way, ladies. <coughs> if you are in that camp, maybe I would suggest to you that you bring your exercise down one day a week. You know, I think that this is kind of a new movement among women that you know, in the 90s, we're supposed to be thin, but now we're supposed to be strong, right? And so we're at the gym a lot. But if you're identifying that, yeah, that gym or whatever your setting is, it is causing impurity to grow in your life and to pull you away from doing your purposes as God's temple and as his priest, maybe take it down one day. If you go to the gym five days a week, go to the gym four days a week and see if that gives you more victory and more of an understanding of what this obedience looks like. 
But how about the other side? Those times in our life when we struggle with laziness and apathy and maybe just frustration. What I think motivates me in these seasons is to realize that I have a huge purpose. I, it's not that God needs me, but it's that he has given us this sweet purpose as his priests. It's a big job description. We've unpacked a lot of it this semester. So we need to set ourselves up for success. And you could even say to be in shape to do this good work. And what I mean by that is not a certain weight or size, but largely what I'm talking about is the state of our mind, right? Exercise is good for our minds. Getting out and moving is going to help us be more clear in our minds. Even Paul talks about beating our bodies and making it a slave. It helps us with self-control. But I also think like the times in my life where I'm in this ditch, guys, what it looks like for me is that if like, like back when Matt used to work evening shifts, I'd like look at the schedule and if I saw that he was gonna be gone that evening, I was like, all right, chips and ice cream in bed. <laughs> and I loved that and that's fine once in a while, but he was working a lot of evenings. So I'm like, well, he's not here. <laughs> and there, it's not all bad, but it was this idea of the evening hours when kids were in bed and there was no accountability for me, that became a passion uh, I keep forgetting that, passion-enhancing source for me, where I was letting pleasure rule me, even in something as trivial as chips. But subtly, what I was starting to believe as this habit grew of lack of control was that I deserve this. I worked hard all day. I labored for God's kingdom. And now I deserve to check out. And what am I probably going to do late at night while I'm eating those chips? Put on Netflix, right? And so there, here are these two ditches, these two ways that we can get distracted from being the tent for the Holy Spirit. Let, let's have our goal be to be humble on the outside so that we're not a distraction to people one way or the other, but so that we can just light the way to God for them. Ladies, if, if we say that we don't have time to study God's word, but we have time to work out, we've got something backwards. If we say that we don't have time to be in God's word, but we have time to binge watch or to mindlessly scroll through Instagram, we've got something backwards. Maybe what we're forgetting is that the Holy Spirit, that dynamite power lives in us and is equipping us and enabling us for a great work. So let's be fit, let's be sharp, let's be focused by his power. The takeaway from this is not to be a superhero, but to abide in that Holy Spirit's power so that we can tell so many women how sweet it is that God dwells with us, that he is near to us.